0: Okay, Adam, this is the Statues and Stories with Adam Levison. How are you, Adam? Good
1: evening, everybody. How are you?
0: Well, I'm looking forward to your talk today. Um, you're going to have to ask all your questions to Ed Vidal because uh, I've been caught up and complicated today, so I haven't read the, the, the links as I like to do every time you call. So any quiz, you've got to talk to Ed Vidal. So tell us what we're going to talk about today. You're listening to Adam Levinson for Statues and Stories here on WSQF 94.5.
1: So uh, thank you for the lead-in, and I think this is an excellent opportunity for people. We've got material that applies uh, across the board, all kinds of good stuff. So what does that mean? That means we're going to be talking about this nullification crisis, which was a continuation of last Mm -hmm. week's discussion. So in South Carolina, and these are some questions that you both were asking last week, under the presidency of Andrew Jackson, we came into a situation where the state of South Carolina was trying to argue that they could ignore federal law and we're gonna now continue and flesh out that conversation. But I think it's also useful when we talk about nullification in the 1830s in South Carolina, and when we talk about tariffs, to also understand the Constitution process and how the Constitution was adopted and why that's important to know. So I think that's useful background for us to have. So we'll talk about the Constitution, which brings us back to the 1789 timeframe and the Constitutional Convention, which was 1787. And we can also talk about some economic theory because we're gonna be talking about tariffs and the the famous tariff that factors in to the conversation is the Tariff of Abominations from 1828. So that leaves the groundwork for what we're going to cover today, and it's a wide-ranging subject. i also like to point out, before we get too much into the details, that uh, you know I'm here on behalf of statutesandstories.com, which is a website which uses primary sources and laws and all kinds of good documents to tell the story of American history. But statutesandstories.com is not a political website. It's a historical website. So I don't always agree or disagree with uh, what's discussed in the other earlier hours. And uh, the other quick observation is I like to point to some of the historians because when I talk on behalf of statutes and stories, I'm a lawyer by day. I'm a history blocker at night. So I have to, I, for me to have credibility, it makes sense for me to refer to other historians who are the trained historians. So tonight, the historians that are on the, the go list are Arthur Schlesinger again, who wrote The Age of Jackson because we're talking about the 1830s when mm-hmm. old Hickory was the president, and also The American Lion by John Misham. And uh, that's another book, a biography about. Andrew Jackson. So that lays the groundwork. And are there any particular parts of the conversation that we want to focus on, guys? Any particular things that interest you?
0: Yeah, why do they call Andrew Jackson Jackass Jackson?
2: No. <laughs> so uh,
0: I'm not sure if Just that's kidding. Nice. I'm just pulling a, uh, an opinion on you. That's Alright, never mind.
1: So Jackson was a tough guy, and I think that's that's, that's a good way to mention that he uh, had fought uh, during the War of 1812, and uh, he was he was a good general from the standpoint of commanding the troops and getting things done. And uh, one of these days, maybe we can play the song about uh, my my father loved, to, when I was a kid, listen to that song. But uh, the, some of the so, fighting that took place so
2: in New Orleans. And Adam, the, I have a question uh, up yes. front. You said the tariff that's at issue here was from 1828. Uh, That was the year that Jackson was elected, so he didn't sign it, did he?
1: That's an excellent question. So you're right. So let me give some of the background. So the tariff of abominations, which leads to his election, was signed, and that's exactly right, by President John Quincy Adams. And really that tariff led to Adams, and Mrs. Adams became the first president to not win. I'm sorry, his father was also a president, who right. he didn't win re-election. Maybe that was the curse of the Adams. Right. So John Adams doesn't get re-elected, and then his son John Quincy doesn't get elected. And to your point, Ed, the reason why, or one of the reasons that John Quincy Adams doesn't get elected. And loses to to Jackson is because of this big controversy over this tariff we 're going to talk about
0: so
2: mm-hmm. let me
1: back us up a little bit so talking about tariffs the first tariff, and here I like to ask you questions and ask your listeners every so often some questions. So what was the first tariff? And the first tariff, and I always find a way of bringing Alexander Hamilton in our conversations, the first tariff was in 1789 when the first treasurer, this is Alexander Hamilton, needed money to help fund all the the new government that's getting put together. So that was the first tariff in 1789. But the, the tariff that we had in 1816 was the first real protectionist tariff. So in 1816, the tariff of 1816, put in place and here I could ask you what do you think that tariff was when they started doing a protectionist tariff in eighteen sixteen, what do you think the rate was and I'll give you some background. The original tariff from seventeen eighty nine was twelve point five percent on certain items. And other items it was here's some examples, a gallon of beer or ale was five cents per pound distilled spirits, again, this is 1789, $0.08 per pound, tea, $0.06 per pound. So different things, depending upon what it was, it's either per pound or the highest rate was 12.5%, and that was the tariff of 1789. So now when you move forward to 1816, when you start putting in place more heavily protectionist tariffs, what do you think the highest rate was in 1816 if the rate that we started at was 12.5 in 1789?
2: I I would guess it would be at least twice.
1: And that's perfect. So, very good. So, the tariff of 1816, which starts us on this road of protectionist tariffs, was between 20 to 25 percent, so that was an excellent guess. So, let's talk a little bit about the tariff of 1816. That tariff was not too controversial. So, the background was you had the American system, which we talked about other nights. The American Mm -hmm. system was Henry Clay's plan of, and it sort of, grew out of Hamilton's plans of uh, economic systems whereby you do some protectionist tariffs to protect the manufacturing in the north and the idea was that uh, it also had to raise money for the government and this was the era of good feelings in the 1816 time frame where things were working pretty well and the cotton gin had been created in the late 1790s that was uh, Eli uh, Whitney and uh, that's increasing the demand for cotton it has perverse effects because it perpetuates and makes slavery worse in the south but uh, the cotton gin led to a more demand for cotton and uh, that's helping manufacturers in England and in the north so things are working well in 1816. But then you have an economic downturn in 1819, because after the War of 1812, there are various reasons why the economy slows down. So they made the mistake, some economists argue, in 1824 of doubling down and putting in place more tariffs. So the 18 tariff, 1816 tariff, which was to 20 to 25%, gets raised to 35% in 1824. So you're putting in steeper tariffs, and uh, the North is now getting more and more industrialized. The South is not. So the South does not want to see, and we're getting, starting to begin to see, in 1824, the South is no, uh, you know, when you do a tariff and you raise the costs for our trading partners in Britain and other countries, they're going to buy less from us, yeah. and we need to sell our cotton and our, our agricultural well,
2: products. To, Adam, let me, let me ask you a question. What, what were the products, and I guess it was manufacturing, that were being protected?
1: The idea, I think, was that the North, because he didn't have much manufacturing in the South, right. wants to start these new industries and ah. start these uh, these new businesses, and uh, anything that they could manufacture, iron, and then uh, some factories making clothing, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, now, that's a good lead-in, by the way, to the tariff of 1828, which is where we started. Mm-hmm. So the tariff of 1824, which is put in place when the economy is uh, getting a little bit rough, puts the uh, rates up to 35%. Uh, and Then you have another economic downturn, 1825, uh, because of the stock crash Mm -hmm. that happened in that time frame, and uh, you have, and this gets into the economics. If you start putting in tariffs when the economy is going into a downturn, uh, and we can get into some of the ideas, that's you know, that's decreasing demand, and uh, you know we, we could talk about uh, what you might want to do when you know, when the economy is—this gets into monetary policy and fiscal mm-hmm. policy. But I think most economists agree that um, it is not stimulative when you put a tariff in place when the economy is already contracting. Yep. So now yep. yeah, yep. we're in 1828, and this is going to get to your conversation about that election. So leading into that election of 1828, John Quincy Adams is going to be running against Andrew Jackson. And it's going to be a very close election, and it was a very personal election. And why do I say it was going to be a heated election? Because John Quincy Adams was elected in 1824, and that was referred to. That election of 1824 was the first time that you had a it was a four way election.
2: Yeah, the popular vote uh, did not win. Well, not only that, it went to Congress, it exactly. went to the House. Yeah, the so House. That 1824 election, um, you know, John Adams did
0: not. And ever- by the way, Adam. That's the first time the Democratic Party wanted to get rid of the Electoral College. Nothing's changed. Sorry, I had to do that. The
1: Electoral College did not work very well in 1824, and as you both said, it had to go to the House, and in that corrupt bargain is what it was called. Clay, who was running, winds up throwing his support, because it was a four-way election. Clay provides his support to John Quincy Adams, and that's how Quincy Adams, who had less votes than John than Jackson, winds up getting the presidency. So Jackson knows four years later...
0: And Clay, becomes, uh, State, and Clay becomes Secretary of State, correct? And Clay becomes Secretary of State.
1: I'm not sure I'd have to check and see. I know a lot of the time he was in the Congress. In the, in the, uh, that in, was the deal. Congress. But um, I'm not sure. Your Secretary
0: of State was probably the most prominent position for the United States, other than the President.
1: And I agree that often the Secretary of State would then be running for president later. Exactly. So it was a good stepping stone back then to become president. So uh, long story short, we knew from that 1824 election that Quincy Adams is going to have a difficult road to hoe. In 1828, Jackson wants payback. So Jackson supporters come up with this idea, and I think it just tells that you got to be careful when you're playing with fire. And this idea they come up with is to, and it was really manipulative and uh, sometimes these things boomerang, but the idea was to come up with a plan that would embarrass John Quincy Adams. That's their insurance policy. So they came up with this really ridiculous tariff proposal. This is now leading into that election. So uh, here the rate was starting at 20 to 25 in 1816. The rate goes to 35% on tariffs in 1824. But in 1828, they come up with a 50% tariff rate, but they didn't think it would get, a vote. it would get voted on. And their, their strategy was that they want to show that, uh, and this is why sometimes I, I think the best policy is honesty, not to try to deceive voters, but this plan that Jackson Jackson's supporters had was to make it seem as if he's opposing it in the South, but he's favoring it in the North, because the political parties didn't really break down on, on, on tariff issues. We'll get into some of the details of what the cleavages were. So they were trying to position Andrew Jackson in the North doing one thing and in the South doing something else, because they didn't think it would be adopted. But it did go through, because the Northern supporters, so the Northern senators and Northern representatives in Congress, uh, were so interested in getting higher tariffs on imported manufactured goods, they were willing to put up with higher tariffs on the imported goods on raw on, on, on materials and on, on exports. So long story short, uh, this, this approach which was to try to embarrass Adams, it worked. But the tariff was adopted and then i think that raises the question why would adam sign something that he's opposed to why didn't he just veto it and back then the thinking was that a president should not veto a law unless there was a constitutional reason to to veto it so even if he disagreed
0: and that should that should be applied today
2: no that was the thinking back then the president's really should it's called integrity you know go ahead no 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 they just just disagreed the veto comes from uh, the Roman Republic, and there was no requirement of, uh, of unconstitutionality. Just, they just disagreed.
0: Well, yeah, but since when are we copying Romans? Why we don't were. we copy the United so, States? No, no. See, that's the problem. Too many people like to compare the United States with other countries, and you can't compare the United States well, to any country.
2: He could, he could do it for political Continue, reasons. Adam, you know you're right we've come a long way but back
1: then the thinking at least for john quincy adams and the early founders was that you know the senate and the house that's the will of the people and for the president to override for political reasons as opposed to constitutional reasons he wasn't prepared to do it so he signed that tariff the tariff of 1828 which was quickly labeled the tariff of abominations and again it was a 50 percent tariff rate and let me do a quick aside uh, because you mentioned the roman senate and where the veto came from so it's just coincidental that my My daughter has a history test on Wednesday, and I'm doing a shout-out to my daughters and to my son. And one of the things that's on her history test, because they're studying Rome, was uh, the Roman consuls. So this is a total aside, but because this is also about vetoes the way that Rome worked. And our founders, Manny, did look to see what other governments, because Rome was that tax romana. That was the longest period in world history where there was peace under one empire although it was not a democracy for large portions of that time. So uh, what the Romans came up with was this idea of division of power, or division of uh, checks and balances, and they had two, at various times, they had two two consuls. And the two consuls were basically kings, and uh, they would work with the Senate, the two consuls. And the reason why the Romans had these two consuls was because one could veto the other. The consuls had to work together. Mm -hmm. If the two consuls weren't working together, they could not... Um, you know they could veto each other, so it facilitated compromise, which is something we can talk about today. And then the Romans also had this idea of a dictator, and we've talked about this before, but in that time of crisis they would get rid of the veto, they would have one dictator that right. had pretty much unlimited power and at the end of the crisis, the dictator was retired, and that gets hit to Cincinnati. And so we've talked about uh, Cincinnati, who famously, after being dictator, retires to his farm uh, to lead a life of, uh, you know, ag- whatever you want to call it, agrarian uh, quiet and, and peace. And that was what Washington had aspired to do when we talk about Cincinnati. So that's a little bit of Roman history. Yep. So, where are we? We're 1828, and this tariff with a rate of up to 50% is adopted, even though no one thought it would be adopted. And nevertheless, John. Quincy Adams loses, and Jackson comes in. And one of the consequences of having this ridiculous tariff, which was such a high rate, 50 percent, and back then nobody really supported it, even though it was adopted in Congress. So the South was particularly upset with it because it's drying up the ability of, of uh, the British competitors and the British trading partners to, uh, to buy the Southern cotton, and the South was increasingly reliant on the cotton. And they're not happy that now they're going to have to pay this big tariff rate on imports because the, the South doesn't make anything. It just does agriculture for all intents and purposes. So there's a dilemma now, and this leads to who is the leader from South Carolina that's going to start off this nullification crisis when South Carolina, when South Carolina wants to nullify that tariff of 1828.
2: Oh my God. Uh, Clay. No, no, John C. Calhoun. Calhoun! Oh, he played a role in that. And yeah, <laughs> Also, uh, Cal, uh, after whom Calhoun College in Yale is named after.
1: So Calhoun is an interesting guy, and he was the vice president under Jackson. So now you have – Calhoun comes from South Carolina, and uh, he's the vice president in South Carolina, and some of the southern states are up in arms. How could this tariff be passed? And uh, the theory that Calhoun comes up with – and this is this notion of nullification, and he writes – anonymously. It later comes out that he wrote it. So he writes a pamphlet uh, called the South Carolina Exposition and Protest, the South Carolina Exposition and Protest. And this theory that he comes up with is that these tariffs are not being raised to have money for the federal government. There are secondary purposes, which is to protect northern manufacturing. So it's not revenue-raising tariffs. So his theory was that because this is invalid, if it's not for the explicit purpose of raising revenue, he thinks that different states have the right, if they vote, to not follow federal law, and that's where this concept of nullification comes from, that individual states can say, you know what, we're not going to follow this federal law, and Calhoun's theory, and this is a very dangerous theory, is that uh, if individual states can decide not to participate or not to go along – and remember, for Calhoun, the way he described it, you know, the Constitution was originally 13 states that came together, and if we have time, we can talk about the Constitution ratification process. But his idea was that the Constitution was just a compact among the 13 states. Now, it's grown to – back then, it was probably in the 20s, 20 or so states <clears> – <throat> And his his notion was, if uh, if it's an agreement or a contract among the states, then the states can change the contract, because a contract is never—contracts a are meant to be amended if it's just a regular contract. And that gets to this debate. Is the Constitution just a contract? And uh, it was going to be pointed out that, no, the Constitution is an executed contract. That's the position that Henry Clay took. So what does Jackson do now? You have South Carolina. Effectively saying that we're not going to follow federal law. If you're Andrew Jackson, then and remember Andrew Jackson had been a, a general during the War of 1812, and there are also other issues that he had been involved with. with um With military campaigns against the Indians, and maybe we'll have time to talk about the Native Americans, which is highly controversial and some of the things that he was doing. But nevertheless, on the subject of nullification, this is an issue now that gets presented squarely to Andrew Jackson. So, how does Andrew Jackson react? And I think this is a very important turning point in American history. And what South Carolina does is they pass, based upon that publication that I mentioned, the South Carolina Exposition and Protest, written anonymously by Calhoun, the state of South Carolina in November of 1832 adopts what are called nullification ordinances and I want to read you from some of the nullification ordinances adopted by South Carolina and it says because they're not happy with that tariff of 1828 and they're not happy with the subsequent tariffs that have been adopted they want to see the tariff rates go down quicker so this is what's in the nullification ordinance and this is fighting language so it says quote that the tariff of 1828 was unauthorized by the Constitution of the United States and violates the true meaning and intent thereof and are null, no void and no law nor binding upon this state. So what's going to happen if a state says federal law is not binding on us, what's Jackson to do? So one of the things he does, and there's some letters, and we quote a lot of this, and we'll be adding more on com, He writes a letter to, and remember that his vice president was... Calhoun. Calhoun resigns. It's towards the end of his term anyway. He resigns. And the new vice president that gets elected is Martin Van Buren. And Van Buren receives a letter from Jackson, and Jackson writes that all we want is to peaceably nullify the nullifiers. And I think that's kind of funny to see. Nullify the nullifiers is the express goal of Jackson. He doesn't want to go to war over this, but he's prepared to do it. And remember, this is a guy that carried a big stick before Teddy Roosevelt carried a big stick. So what does Jackson do? And uh, he does two things. He goes to Congress and he gives a speech, and I'll be quoting to you from some of the speech he gives. And I think this is smart. The speech he gives is somewhat moderate compared to the proclamation that he issues. So he gives a speech to Congress on December 4th, which sort of holds the the door open for compromise, and again, I'll quote from some of it, and that was December 4th of 1832. Uh, December 10th, he is- issues this proclamation, and it's a famous proclamation to the people of South Carolina, and I want to talk with you about who wrote most of the proclamation that Jackson gives, but to hear some of the language, which is a very important language, because Jackson stands up and says, you know what, not on my watch, am I going to allow a state basically pull the thread that can pull apart the Union? So in this address, Jackson says the following: He says that nullification is "quote incompatible with the existence of the Union." It's contradicted expressly by the letter of the Constitution. It's unauthorized by its spirit. It's inconsistent with every principle on which it was founded, and it's destructive of the great object for which it was formed. It undermines, in other words, the Constitution. So it's not that the the federal government is undermining rights of South Carolina. It's that South Carolina, so you brought in the picture is under, undermining the rights of the entire Constitution. It's a threat to the Union. So he points out that South Carolina's objections were based upon and they were misguided and incorrect. And he says, and I agree with this, that the Constitution gave Congress the, quote, discretionary power to raise revenue. Nowhere in the Constitution, in Article 1, Article 1, of course, we know is the legislative power, and the powers of Congress, I think, is Article 1, Section 8. So Congress has the right and the power, which is an express, enumerated power, to raise money, to tax and to spend, to levy taxes. Nowhere does it say that the taxes can only be used to raise revenue. So remember, the purpose of these tariffs was to raise revenue, but also to to um, you know, protect northern industries, et cetera. So there are other economic reasons for tariffs. So... So the first objective of the first argument that Jackson is making is that no the Constitution gives the right to tax to Congress doesn't matter what else is being accomplished with the tax and by the way we could talk about how taxes have been used for other purposes so the next observation is this is Jackson again in this proclamation he says that we joined all the states together into a single nation and here's a quote in becoming part of a nation they surrendered many parts of their essential sovereignty and you know some people may agree or disagree with that but I think that ultimately that's what the Constitution recognizes that when you have the states join into a single nation and become part of a nation that the states did surrender part of their sovereignty to the federal government because you have the Supremacy Clause in the Constitution. So that's another point that Jackson makes in this proclamation to the people of South Carolina. He also warns, and this is why Jackson's a tough guy, he warns the people of South Carolina don't be tricked into nullification by political and social leaders and that any action quote of disunion by force is treason. And if you accuse someone of treason, that's a, that's a powerful position to take. So he's warning South Carolina, I don't mess around. And any act of disunion, by force, that's important, by force, is treason. But his address ends with the hope that the nation will survive and be reconciled by reasonableness and harmony. And also on the assurance that it will be reconciled by force if necessary. So he's ready to use force and he threatens force. So that's what's in this important and I keep referring to it as the the proclamation to the people of South Carolina. And I, I want to give some credit here that Jackson reads it and he gets behind this proclamation, but I you was know, going to do some work behind the scenes and you're not gonna know the answer, but I'll ask it anyway. Who do you think wrote the proclamation of of Jackson that was written to the people of South carolina, and it these were constitutional arguments that we were just giving, so who do you think wrote that for him and the answer is it's a good thing that we had scholars and people in government you know in his cabinet who knew what they what they were doing and the, the quick answer is that the, the individual who wrote that proclamation to the people of South Carolina was a Livingston, Edward Livingston. And Edward Livingston, and I think he's an interesting character who needs some some attention, um, came from the famous Livingston family, and his older brother was Robert Livingston. Mm-hmm. Before I talk about Edward Livingston, let me talk about Robert Livingston. So Robert Livingston was a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and the older brother, Robert Livingston, was also involved, I can to give you some idea, of, uh, of the older brother, was on the Committee of that, as I said, drafted the Declaration of Independence. And there's a famous picture or portrait that was done by John Trumbull in 1817 of the Declaration of Independence. And that picture has Jefferson standing next to Franklin, standing next to Adams, Roger Sherman, and Livingston, because those were the five who wrote the Declaration of Independence, and that's a famous portrait, right. which was, again, written. or it's written,
2: was, what, what state you know. was he from? Say that again? What state was he from?
1: So Livingston was from New York, and the okay. Livingston family was a powerhouse in New York.
2: Okay. And it's
1: interesting because from prior nights and discussions, people may remember that the Jay family was very influential in New York, yep. and also the Schuyler family. And Manny, when I mentioned the Schuylers, who were the Schuylers when we talk about the play?
0: Oh my God, you kill me, man.
1: So The, the Schuyler sisters, one of the favorite. Oh yes,
0: that uh, um, Alexander Hamilton got involved with.
1: Uh-huh. So he marries into the Schuyler family. So these are some political rivalries in New York.
0: In other words, you can't have me, but you can have my little sister.
1: That's right. So you have Angelica Schuyler, and you have, there are several Schuyler sisters. You also have Eliza. Hamilton marries Eliza, and the older sister, Angelica, marries uh, this fellow church. So what's the point? The point is that the Edward Livingston, who is a younger brother of Robert Livingston, winds up seeing the way that the, uh, you know, the politics, reading the, uh, seeing the way the wind is blowing, uh, joins with Jefferson. So the Livingston family are basically supportive of Jefferson and Madison. They're not Federalists. And uh, here's more of a historical aside for you, that when Edward Livingston, who is the younger brother, this is the guy that writes that proclamation that we talked about, that important proclamation that Jefferson is able to support. So Edward Livingston um, was admitted to the New York Bar in 1785. And remember, because we talked about it, I think, last week, that Hamilton, It was two weeks ago. Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton, joined the New York Bar in 1785. And that was the same year, I think, that Aaron Burr joined the New York Bar. So Edward Livingston, Hamilton, and Burr all become lawyers at that same time in the 1780s, after the Revolutionary War. But uh, Edward Livingston becomes a Democrat-Republican. And it's quite interesting because he, remember what was the big political battle during the end of Washington's term in 1795? The big controversy was Jay's Treaty. And remember, if you're a Democrat-Republican, meaning a Jeffersonian Democrat, if they have different names for it, but if you're a Jeffersonian, did you support Jay's treaty? And the answer is no, you were very opposed to Jay's treaty. And for that reason, Edward Livingston was one of those who was opposed to Jay's treaty. And uh, interestingly, when we talk about Jay's treaty, and I think you're going to see more and more about this in the news today, that uh, this issue of executive privilege, is executive privilege going to be raised as a basis to not give certain information? And this is what we're talking about today in, in, in Congress. And that's the first time that this idea of executive privilege came out, because when George Washington was asked by... Edward Livingston to turn over the diplomatic communications that led into the adoption of Jay's Treaty and the the diplomatic correspondence with Jay. Uh, Washington refused to turn it over and Hamilton advised him don't give this to Congress, they're just going to use it against you and they have no business reading your private executive communications with your Secretary of State. So now the irony is that uh, Livingston, Edward Livingston, becomes the Secretary of State, I think it was, and I'm pretty sure, under Jackson, and he's the guy that writes this proclamation to South Carolina. So it's wanna make sure that we follow Edward Livingston is an important and the connection was that Edward Livingston from New York was the aide de camp to Jackson during the war of eighteen twelve. So I tried to figure out how, how is it that a New Yorker, because Livingston is from that important New York family, winds up in Louisiana during the War of 1812. And the quick answer was that when Louisiana is going to become a state, Livingston gets out of New York because he needs to make money, and he had some financial difficulties. So he goes down south because he wants to get involved with Louisiana and gets involved in politics in New Orleans. And when the war starts, you know, he works together with Andrew Jackson and they become good close friends. And he had all that expertise and all that uh, training when he was in New York and he was part of that Livingston family. So uh, you know he gets put into the cabinet for Jackson and writes that very important, whatever yeah. we want to call it, that proclamation. Know, let me give you some more language in yeah. that proclamation. So let me read You know, form. Adam,
2: the, during the 1800s, there was a lot of trade between New Orleans and New York because they were both some of the biggest commercial cities. And in fact, I've heard that the reason Dixie, the South is called Dixie, is because the bills of lading and bills of exchange from New Orleans uh, had the word, the French word "dix" for ten, and the New Yorkers said, "Oh, you guys are from Dixie." That makes
1: perfect sense. And, and by the way, I like the way you pronounce Nolans.
2: New Orleans. yeah. Danny, how
1: do you pronounce it? New
2: Orleans. New Orleans. New York.
1: And I agree. New Orleans, is, however you pronounce it, is a very important city. And that trade coming down the Mississippi yep. has to go through New Orleans. So that makes sense. That uh, Edward Livingston, uh, you know, comes down to New Orleans because he may have had connections, as you're pointing out, Ed, yep. you know, with trade from New York to New Orleans. Anyway, yep.
2: there was a lot of trade there.
1: So long story short, he becomes good friends with Jackson, gets appointed to become Secretary of State under Jackson. Uh, That's an important role, either Secretary of State or Secretary of Treasury. And uh, again, now we have this issue, South Carolina is effectively threatening to secede. And I want to read you once again from that very important proclamation to the people of South Carolina. So this is Jackson, as written by Edward Livingston. Those who told you that you might peaceably prevent the execution of the laws deceived you. They could not have been deceive themselves, their object is disunion. But be not deceived by names. Disunion by armed force is treason. Are you really ready to incur its guilt? If you are, on the heads of the instigators of the act be the dreadful consequences, on their heads be the dishonor, but on yours may fall the punishment. And he goes on to say, you know, towards the end of the speech in that proclamation, I'm abjuring you, I'm I'm pleading with you to retrace your steps. We can work this out, but I'm holding that big stick, which is, I'm going to come down to South Carolina if I need to. And this is a guy that fought very well in New Orleans during the War of 1812. So how do they get out of this controversy? And here you have Henry Clay steps up to the fore, and he comes up with this compromise because he's one of the famous compromisers in Congress. Uh, for example, the great compromises over slavery, and we can debate about those compromises. But uh, and, and by the way, I, I would generally agree that uh, a compromise that perpetuates slavery was a bad compromise. What is the compromise that Henry Clay comes up with in 1833? And the quick answer is that uh, he says we'll lower incrementally. In two-year intervals, we'll lower, and a compromise means all the parties have to gain something. So Henry Clay's compromise is every two years we will reduce the tariff rate, so it's going to come down every two years. And he also comes up with this idea of a force bill. So what is the force bill that Andrew Jackson supports? And the force bill says that Congress is authorizing him to use force to go down to South Carolina and to, to enforce the law if he needs to do it. So as part of this compromise, South Carolina gets a victory because the tariff is going to come down. Andrew Jackson substantiates, and he vindicates the principle of federal supremacy. So South Carolina, by the way, nullifies the force bill. They say, hey, we're not going to follow the force bill. But there's no consequence to that, because they don't have a choice. If the Army's coming down to South Carolina, they can nullify it all they want. But they do rescind the ordinance, which nullified the tariffs. So South Carolina agrees that they'll comply with the tariffs, but every two years, the tariff rates will come down. And um, I wanted to point out to you that if you actually look at, and this is one of the things I like to do on statutesandstories.com, if you go to com the website, we've got a link if you actually want to read the Force Act, and the Force Act had a trigger in it, and I think this was really smart on Congress's part. So what does Congress do? When they pass this law, which authorizes the use of force. They don't unilaterally, when they say they, Congress doesn't unilaterally give Jackson the ability to bring troops into South Carolina to immediately march down. Instead, it has a trigger, and I think that's something that Congress is, is right to do that. Um, you know, don't give too much unlimited authority unless you Absolutely need to. So section five of the Force Act, which was adopted in eighteen thirty three, says that yeah, the president can use force as long as the law's being quote obstructed and military force is really the only lawful means Uh, because it cannot overcome the resistance, this is a quote, it's too great to be overcome by ordinary courses of uh, judicial proceedings. So you can only use the force, President, if you're being obstructed, if the law is being obstructed, then you can't overcome that resistance by judicial proceedings. So you should try to use the law first, try to use the courts first, try to use the police first before you bring down the the army. So that's why I think it's worthwhile that the force act did contain that trigger. And any well, questions about the force act before we move on
2: no you can you can proceed yeah i'm not sure that uh alex uh, president jackson had a standing army to enforce that
0: well and you're right so this
1: is what he did he ordered as he saw that he's ramping up because he may need to go after South Carolina Mm -hmm. and that's another interesting point he was from South Carolina so when he's threatening to use force against South Carolina that was where he was born he was born Mm -hmm. near the border of North and South Carolina Uh, so he didn't want to use force but he was prepared to do it and I think that's another statement about you know a president needs to have a good debate about it the president needs to have credibility and the president if they're
2: threatening to use force you know if they make that threat you know hopefully people understand that they're not bluffing he drew a red line in South Carolina. So that
0: right. means that Barack Obama should have invaded
2: Chicago. No, no, no. <laughs> so well, I'm gonna
1: avoid getting into
0: Ah there you go. I get you. That's th- that's he three and
2: should have drawn a red line. But what what I don't know that there was a standing US army.
1: So what he did have He did have forts, so he ordered the strengthening of the forts, that way they'd be prepared if they were attacked. And he also ordered the revenue cutters, because he doesn't have much in the way of of an Air Force, of of a Navy. So he orders uh, them to come down, to start heading down to South Carolina. And uh, a lot of the military, you're right, was the militia, and it was what was left over from the War of 1812. So you're right, he doesn't have the immediate ability. And that's another important point, that when South Carolina passed, and I didn't mention this to you, when South Carolina passes that nullification ordinance, the nullification ordinance didn't say that they were immediately nullifying. And I think this is when, when people are going to do brinkmanship, make sure you're giving yourself some latitude that you can uh, change courses, right, when you're playing. When you're playing
0: um, and, you know, I let your opposition save face.
1: That's right. When you're when you're playing, what's the game? And it's not even a game. When you uh, have two cars that are uh, you know threatening to run each other off the road, chicken, right? Yeah, playing, playing chicken. Political when you're playing political chicken, don't take the steering wheel off the car <laughs> unless you're really crazy. Um, and maybe that's your strategy. So what the South Carolina nullification ordinances provided was that the nullification would take effect in February. So there were months before the nullification laws would, would take effect in South Carolina. So they were giving themselves time, time and opportunity to compromise. So that was good news. And Jackson um, you know, eventually worked out this deal with Henry Clay. So he vindicates the principle and he's not going to let the union come apart on, on, his, on his watch and I want to have a little bit of a discussion about constitutional theory because we can debate about this was Calhoun right that states have the ability to um, you know pick and choose the
2: federal no, law like? no 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 and this
1: gets to the way the constitution was put
2: together no. federal law is supreme yeah yeah
1: federal law supreme i'm going to refer everyone and and this is something i had to dust off and take a look at it article seven and no one ever really pays attention to article seven of the constitution It's at the very bottom and article seven doesn't apply anymore today that was how the constitution got ratified so this is sort of a trick question but how did the constitution get ratified was it through state legislatures or was it through state ratification conventions
2: i think they're mostly conventions
1: it was all convention. All convention. So the framers to their—and this is, a, I think, very useful for purposes of uh, other conversations they like to have on, on the subject of Constitution amendments mm-hmm. uh, or ratification conventions. Yep. So the, the quick observation is that the framers knew that if the—when I say the framers—those who met the 55 individuals who met in Philadelphia in 1787 to write the Constitution, they knew that there was going to be opposition from the state legislatures. Mm-hmm. And I'll give some examples of that that opposition. So their theory was is that instead of having the state legislatures either give amendments or prevent it from being adopted that if it was brought to the people and this gets to you know the opening phrases in the Constitution and the preamble we the people of the United States so it was the people that voted for their representatives in these, Constitution ratification conventions and this is what Article 7 says so Article Article 7 says that the ratification of the conventions of nine states shall be sufficient so remember that under the Articles of Confederation you needed 13 states to all agree and that was one of the weaknesses of the Articles that you had to have all 13 states agree and Rogue Island or Rhode Island would never agree that's why they really couldn't get anything done and this is, gets back to Hamilton and Madison and Washington wanting to replace the Articles of Confederation because it was very ineffective so the point is that it was ratification conventions of the states, nine of them, not the state legislatures. Okay, yep. It was very questionable that the state legislatures would have agreed to this. And it's also another interesting point, which I was not aware of until recently, that when the founders from the... And the Constitutional Convention in 1787, finished. So they originally convened in the May time frame. They finished on Constitution Day, which is September 17th. Everybody remembers September 17th is a big day in American history. So September 17th is when they finished. And we can talk about what they celebrated when they finished. So they went out to dinner and they had a big banquet. And I have a copy of the bill if you want to know what they were drinking. Ask me about that.
2: <laughs> yeah. Morning. What are they drinking? My, oh, beer.
1: All right, so... We'll get into the Constitution revision process and Constitution adoption process, but because you asked, I have the bill for City Tavern, and they had a big celebration on September 14th because they'd finished writing it, and they had a big celebration on September 17th because that's the day they signed it. So, 55, uh, there were supposed to be 55 that they anticipated, including six musicians, so they had to feed the musicians. So, I'm asking you to tell me the number of bottles of wine if you have, and these are big drinkers. If you have 55 individuals, and I want to say it was all men, how many bottles of Madeira wine, am I pronouncing that right? Madeira yeah, wine?
2: Madeira, yeah. Yeah, why not?
1: How many bottles do you think that were ordered for City Tavern, which is four blocks?
2: 110.
1: Okay, so no, each had two. No,
2: <laughs> no, no.
1: And this is a, sort of a trick question. So I asked how many bottles of Madeira wine, and the answer is 54. But. Then they had claret, 60 bottles of claret.
2: That's better, yeah.
1: 22 bottles of porter, 12 bottles of beer, and they also had seven large bowls of punch. So All that right. gives you some idea of uh, the drinking that the founders were celebrating, yep. the, 50, the 55 gentlemen's, and that's a quote. Uh, and what did they get for dinner? They had fruit, relishes, and olives, and plus the dinner. And I, I misspoke, it wasn't six musicians, it was nine musicians and seven waiters.
2: I think the, the Claret was probably good. Know. It's Bordeaux wine, red wine usually from Bordeaux. The Madeira is—it tends to be very sweet.
0: Well, oh, Porto. If it's port, when they said Porto, I imagine no, it's Porter a Porto. No, Porter is
2: probably ale.
0: Oh, Porter a, is a beer.
2: Yeah, I think so, an ale, yeah.
0: Yeah, Okay.
2: But the Madeira so tends to be really interesting sweet. that.
1: They adopt the Constitution. They have their farewell banquet on nine seventeen, September seventeenth of eighteen of seventeen eighty seven, and they now have to decide what to do with the Constitution. So they send a letter, this was on the recommendation of Benjamin Franklin, who was the oldest of all of the delegates, and the recommendation was don't just deliver the Constitution, have a cover letter with the Constitution explaining that we support this document, even though three people didn't sign it, three of the founders did not sign it for various reasons because they wanted to see a Bill of Rights. So the Constitution arrives at, has to go to New York, because that's where the, 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 it's called the, under the Articles of Confederation, it was called the Confederation Congress. So the Confederation Congress is in New York. The Constitution is being drafted in Philadelphia at Independence Hall. So the question is, what does Congress do when they get this new Constitution? And try to remember here that this is important, too, that this was written in secrecy. One of the rules that was adopted when they first met in Philadelphia was that we're going to have a, not a lock on the door, but that we're going to have armed guards guarding the door. And maybe they locked it also so that no one could come in and out. And uh, you know, it was supposed to be private so people could have an open discussion. And they made sure that the the, the recordings – and when I say recordings, the handwritten notes, the journals, was not to be made public. They wanted strict confidentiality. So what this. Congress, the Congress under the Articles do, when they get this new Constitution. And remember that uh, they are only authorized to amend the Articles of Confederation, and what they've done instead is they have this whole new, it's only four pages on parchment, but it's a brand new Constitution, a new government. It's revolutionary. What does Congress do? And the quick answer is, and I did not know this, for two days from September 26th through the 27th, for two days Congress debated whether or not to censure the delegates to the Constitutional Convention for exceeding their authority. Imagine that. If Congress had said, you know what, we only gave you the authority to amend the articles, and you've uh, now exceeded your authority, and we're going to throw it in the garbage, things would have been very different. But what did Congress do? Again, when I talk about Congress here, it's the Confederation Congress. After two days of debate, Because George Washington, you can't censure George Washington. They decided to drop the matter. And instead, on September 28th, they direct the state legislatures to call ratification conventions in each state. And that got us on that road to, you needed to get nine states adopting it. And uh, you did get those nine states. So we can talk about that ratification process. And I wanted to make the point that because the delegations to the Constitutional Convention, the delegates, were meeting in confidence and there was strict secrecy, by having these conventions in each of the states, these ratification conventions, they're taking that decision out of the hands of the state legislatures who might have been hostile, and instead they're putting that decision in the hands of the people who are electing the delegates to these conventions. So this served a purpose of informing the public who now gets to learn about the Constitution. It was a forum for proponents and opponents to debate it. And we can talk about, Manny, I've asked you before, in the New York debate, and it was very close in New York, uh, what, what, what papers were written by Hamilton, Jay, and Madison in order to help convince the New York delegates to vote for the, the New York um, members of the New York Convention to, to, uh, to, to approve the Constitution.
0: Well, there were Federalist Papers, but do I have to name the numbers?
1: No 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 I don't even know the number but there were 85 of them that were written between Hamilton
0: and And Hamilton day. wrote 54 of them
1: That's right so uh, Hamilton wrote the vast majority of them or a good good chunk of them. Uh, But the the point is that by having these ratification conventions, it played a role of informing the public about this brand-new Constitution that no one could have read about in the paper because it was in confidence. It was was secret at the time. And uh, it also makes the point that the authority, and this is the larger point I'm trying to make, that the authority for the Constitution doesn't come from the states. The authority and the way the Constitution was adopted with these ratification conventions was by the people, which starts with the preamble, we the people it was not the state legislatures that adopted the constitution so the contract was not a contract between the states which really gets to that point about calhoun was arguing that this was calhoun in this pamphlet that he'd written about nullification it was not a contract among the states the the whole concept of the constitution the way it was presented was that this was a, a this was coming you know from i don't know if you want to call it from above the states or from below the states but it was a it was an effort by the people not the state legislature, so it was not a contract among the states. Uh, and I think that's an important point when you get into nullification, states do not have absolute sovereignty and we could talk about there is definitely reserve power i would absolutely agree with that there are some areas where you've got concurrent power between the federal government and the states and other areas where the federal government is supreme and has uh, you know, the, the ultimate say so if we're talking about new york and the, the ratification debates and some states it was easier than others so what states do you think it was really easy to get ratification through the states that were very quick to sign on and to ratify and uh, the quick answer do you want to give any uh, throughout? names of the easy states that were very quickly adopted the constitution
2: delaware
1: Go. So Delaware, and that's that's the point, that the smaller states were very happy because by having this Connecticut Compromise or the Great Compromise, the smaller states are going to get the Senate with equal representation and then mm-hmm. of course the compromise was also the larger states are going to get more representatives in the House, but the mm-hmm. small states like that. So Delaware became the first to ratify and uh, the other small states followed suit except for Rhode Island. Rhode Island we'll talk about later. Uh, it was the last to, uh, to, to ratify. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all after the Constitution has already taken effect and they're being threatened. They threatened that we're going to treat Rhode Island as a foreign country, basically. So I'll I'll talk about Rhode Island later. But the, the five states signed up quickly and the states that was going to be more difficult were New York and Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. And I want to give you an example of what happened in Pennsylvania. So, in order to have a ratification convention, you had to have the state legislature call a convention. You can't just have a convention unless the legislature agrees to do it, right. or at least under Pennsylvania law, you couldn't. So, the issue in Pennsylvania was there were a lot of anti Federalists in the Pennsylvania Assembly, and at the end of their term, they were making themselves scarce. They didn't want to show up, and if you didn't have of a quorum you couldn't vote on anything so the anti-federalists in the state assembly tried to block the calling of a convention by refusing to attend during the last couple days of the session so what do the federalists do in pennsylvania when they can't get a quorum take a wild guess and this is an extreme measure what do the federalists do in pennsylvania to get a quorum i
2: don't know they dragged there. hmm they did what 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 do you do to get a quorum you drag people in do
1: you think that's what they did? If they don't have a quorum, they can't ratify in Pennsylvania. The anti-federalists, I'll use this expression, are dragging their feet. They're not showing up to have a quorum.
0: So, so what, I think they—, they, they I Expel think they, them.
2: No, expel them.
0: No, they would um, they would just cancel the meeting.
2: No, no, you want the meeting. They want the meeting. Well, of course meeting. you want it, but
0: if you don't have a quorum—
2: Expel the people that didn't show up. Or pay them. <laughs> no, expel them.
1: If you, so maybe if you expel them, but does that satisfy the quorum requirements? If they're expelled, if you were, maybe if you replace them. But with only two days left, and this is remarkable. So the anti-federalists are hiding out in the Back then, there would be boarding houses. They would stay at these boarding houses yeah. during their session, during their term.
2: So, so the
1: quick answer is they were found at their boarding houses and dragged through the streets of Philadelphia yeah. and deposited in the Philadelphia State house, and the doors were locked behind them so they this, couldn't leave. So they could this, vote against it, but they had to be present.
2: The sergeant and at now, arms... The sergeant at arms was ordered to go and find them and bring them back?
1: I don't know if it was a Sergeant in Arms, but uh, presumably, that's how they got the Constitution, not ratified, <laughs> but that's how they got their quorum to hold that Constitutional Ratification Commission or Ratification Convention mm-hmm. against their will. They were held and uh, ultimately they were able to you know, get enough votes and uh, they were able to call that special convention and Philadelphia or, or the state of Pennsylvania adopted the Constitution. So that shows you an extreme measure and I could argue well, if it was... Anti- well, I don't even think it's
0: extreme enough. It's, no, conno- it's apropos from What's going well, on today? But within
2: the last 10 or 12 years, and there have been several states, I think in Wisconsin, when Scott Walker was trying to pass some of the uh, his uh, labor reforms around 2011. Yeah, they went to another state. They went to Illinois. Yes. And the same things happened in Texas. Well, here's, one, here's
0: one for you guys. The night of the 23rd of December, 1913, when it was time to pass the Federal Reserve Act, guess what? There wasn't a quorum because everybody was getting on trains for Christmas, okay? I had searched the newspapers of New York at the time, hoping to find that there was a, a snowstorm or some terrible weather event that forced people to stay in Washington, D.C. to vote for the Federal Reserve Act. Guess what they did instead to establish quorum? They created something called, that was already in place in law, the, the Pair Act. Where you could pair your no vote with a yes vote
2: oh that's still being done and
0: the pair vote was at record highs for the federal reserve act therefore holding into suspect the very fact that the federal reserve act may not have been even passed for lack of quorum so how about them apple hmm uh. Notice how you attorneys are silent when you realize that there's something amiss.
1: Manny, I will look into that. So you're teaching me something. So I will look into. Yeah, uh, record we'll number up, of pair it.
0: votes on December the twi- no, yeah, December the 23rd of 1913. Done. I, in fact, I thought the pair of votes because of that and the scandal that was created as a result of it, that there weren't. You could no longer pair your no, votes. No, they do
2: it. They still do it.
0: They do. You're, you're, in other words, you're voting no. You pair right. it with me. So and just, I'm voting yeah. yes.
2: That's really disgusting. That happened in the Senate recently. I think on the Kavanaugh boat, there was some pairing. I, oh, because two of them weren't present. Right. Some people all couldn't it. kind get... of
1: horse trading, and mm-hmm. what goes on behind the scenes, the sausage making isn't always uh, pretty.
2: Somebody was at a wedding in Montana or something, and he paired off with somebody else who's going the boat against Kavanaugh.
0: How human of him, huh? Yep. You tell your daughter, hey, cancel the wedding.
2: Yep. <laughs> I... Um...
0: My country goes first, but no, it didn't happen that way. When, when, uh, now that we're uh, we're ending the show, we got six minutes left. Uh, when's Max coming? So
2: th- that is an ongoing conversation, and uh...
0: is he holding out for money or something for more money? We gotta sign him.
2: He wants his own program.
0: Yeah, he's a, a contributor. He wants to be a Blink Radio contributor. We gotta we gotta pony yeah, up or we'll... what?
1: Or, or at least you have to be able to talk watches with him. So we'll continue that conversation. <laughs> but I want to end with some more details about the ratification process. All right. We've been, we've been talking about how, um, you know, the... Federalist Papers were written under the pseudonym Publius. And what, what was uh, you know, who was opposed to ratification in New York? And the quick answer is the governor of New York was George Clinton, not the same Clinton family that uh, you know from the, the, the 2000
2: time frame. Right. Not,
0: not you didn't the, have to say that. That could ins- that could turn into a were, real rabbit hole. Those stuff. are
2: Arkansas white trash. Yeah, <laughs> don't, don't, the, don't go, the, go there. Clinton family.
1: So the, the George Clinton, the governor of New York, who was, had a lot of power, and that's why some of the big states did not want to lose power to the federal government. So Clinton was opposed to adopting the Constitution. So he wrote under the name Cato. And uh, Patrick Henry and Monroe, by the way, were, were big opponents. So that's the same Patrick Henry, uh, you know, that's famous from the Revolution, mm-hmm. and James Monroe, who becomes uh, the president later after Madison. So Monroe was a big opponent of the Constitution. And then in also in Massachusetts, you have John Hancock.
0: Okay, can I interrupt you here? How did Monroe end up as President of the United States if he was so anti-United States? Didn't that hurt him in his campaign?
1: That's an excellent question, so... No, the answer is that the Constitution was eventually adopted and they became a supporter of the Constitution. Yep. But initially, a lot of the anti-Federalists, and and part of that compromise, Manny, was that they came
2: up with the Bill of Rights, so the right. anti-Federalists.
0: And it was oh, the that's bad. true, that's true, yeah. yeah. You can't lose sight of that. Yeah, I think The Ge- big hang-up was yeah. the Bill of Rights. George
2: Mason was the only guy who got the Bill of Rights and he still didn't. <laughs>
0: oh, he got the Bill of Rights and still didn't work. Yeah, to... yeah,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. It's, a, it's really, a, It really is an amazing st- uh, amazing experience, uh, what Americans pulled off to this very day. You, you gotta just love how this all played itself out.
2: Providential.
0: It really is a, a sight to behold, and that's that's the beauty of statues and stories segment, is that uh, you can really feel through the, through your, uh, through your explanation the, the texture and tenor of what, uh, what transpires with real opposition. Personal and otherwise, and yet it got done. Amazing.
1: I think this is another reason, and I appreciate that, that sentiment. <clears throat> I want to throw out some uh, some respect to Benjamin Franklin. He's the oldest guy at the Constitutional Convention behind these locked doors. And uh, he brought to the table a lot of wisdom. And we've quoted him before on other nights, but I've got some more quotes for you. So here he's making the point during some of these debates, which were, were pretty fierce. Uh, these are some quotes that we were sent here to consult, not to contend with each other. And he was emphasizing that they use great coolness and temper. Um, in other words, that they don't get too heated coolness, and they contend with each other. And I'm sorry, they consult, not contend with each other. And you know, he also points out towards the very end, I, I think on the last day, that um, we could talk about the... Uh, you know some of the behind the scenes at the ratification conventions, but the uh, Hamilton is also part of that process. But um, what's the point? The point is that Franklin realizes that it's not perfect. It's all about compromises, and they were willing to compromise, at least in the Constitutional Convention, they were willing to compromise. And uh, because I always like to throw in more Hamilton, Hamilton w- was absent for a lot of the debates because there are various reasons. Uh, and we-, we talked about Clinton was the governor of New York. So of the three delegates from New York, and, and maybe this is a question for you, how many from New York, those three delegates were signers on the Constitution.
2: Only one, right? One, yep. Only
1: one Hamilton. So the problem was that two of the delegates, and there were three. Hamilton is the only one that really, you know, is inter- interested in adopting the Constitution. So he's part of the process. But his other two teammates from New York, you know, aren't. Uh, they're obstructionists. They don't want it. and They leave.
0: And also, he was like the last signer, right? I mean, literally, like one of the wasn't New York the last holdout to finish the process?
1: I'll look into that. When you look to see the signatures, it was done. It was done. What's the word for it? Geographically, so New Hampshire at the top and the southern states at the bottom. So it was done from from uh, north to south is the way that they signed it. Uh, with Washington at the top because he was the chairman or whatever his position was called, the chief delegate um, or the president of the constitutional convention. So I was making the point that. Franklin realized this is not perfect, but he makes the observation that it's as perfect as we can make it, so he still thought it was something that, that they should be proud of. And that Constitution, with 39 signers, was only 4,500 words. And uh, the last comment about Hamilton was that Hamilton was put on the Committee on Style at the very end. And what did the Committee on Style do? That's the committee, among other things, that's shortening everything and fitting it into, if I'm not mistaken, it was t- 23 articles, and they shrunk it into seven articles. And think about our Constitution is only four pages long. I'm not talking about the amendments, but it's only 4,500 words, which is four pages. And uh, that committee on style, which was some of the younger guys, so Hamilton, Rufus King, James Madison, Samuel Jackson and Grover Morris uh, wind up, and it's probably Morris is the main individual who does it, but comes, comes up with that important language in the preamble about, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, etc. So it's a union of the people. It's not just a union of states. It's not just a confederation of states. It's the people, and uh, that's who the Constitution comes from. It's from the people.
0: Now, what reasons do you have for Hamilton not showing up at these debates, a person that was so involved, so intimately what could have possibly happened in his life that it didn't allow him to be there uh, in essence the late in the late in the fourth quarter
1: Right, so he, he would come and go, and he missed part of August, and uh, he missed part of September. So I think part of the answer was that he was not a w- independently wealthy, so he had a law practice, so he had to go back and do some work with his law practice. Also, there were limits to what he could accomplish, because the New York delegation, unless there were at least two, they couldn't vote. He couldn't vote because the delegation rules, apparently. Uh, he was. Oh, that's that's
0: good for the audience to notice. Yeah, that you still had to, had to adhere to your state's rules.
1: Right. So a lot of things he couldn't vote. And another quick observation is I know for a fact that there was a meeting of the New York Manumission Society, so he goes off to try to get, he's realizing we're not going to be able to outlaw slavery in the Constitution. And remember, he's a committed guy. He does not like slavery, but he realizes that what he can't accomplish, and maybe this is a good way to end, what Hamilton can not accomplish with the Constitution, which had a compromise actually, had multiple compromises on slavery, right, with the three-fifths compromise and it had multiple compromises. So what he can't accomplish in the Constitution, he wants to accomplish in New York, and he succeeds. That New York goes on the path of gradually, over time, manumitting and getting rid of slavery. So by 1827, New York had fully outlawed slavery, and part of that was Hamilton and Jay and the other founders of the New York Manumission Society. So I think that's another reason he wasn't there all the time.
0: Wow. Incredible. Well, this ends another show of Statues and Stories. With Adam Levinson and Victorious Ed Vidal, they just call him Ed. In fact, I think he should be called Mr. Ed, but
2: that's fine because
0: he's fame. He's more famous than than Mr. Ed on Thank TV. Thank you,
2: Adam. Very useful again. Thank you.
0: And uh, we're looking forward to continuing this escapade. I think the 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 locals here uh, in our community definitely need to hear this. Florida needs to hear this. And with our podcast, the nation needs to hear this because it's not being taught in schools. So stay free, Adam.
1: Have well, a good night. Thank
0: you. Good night. Well, that ends Statues and Stories, Ed. This has been a, uh, a robust <laughs> three hours. Absolutely. Adam brought it, and Carl brought it today, so they get the awards. Carl was very engaging. Carl, I think, likes this a lot. I think we should invite him. Back on our show sooner than later. What do you think?
2: Absolutely, he'll become a regular.
0: Okay, my folks that's uh, statutes and Story. This is Mac on the Rock. Ed Vidal signing off. See you next Monday. So excited about our first story, JC. Uh, it's one that you actually fed to me. Uh, Donald Trump.